Hey creeps, I'm Taylor and this is TGI Crime Day. Welcome to TGI Crime Day. I am so glad that you are here with me and that you clicked into this episode. The last three weeks, I did a very long series about Alec Murdoch and his nightmare of a personality, his lies, his crimes, and the tragic murders of Maggie and Paul Murdoch. If you watched the Netflix series about the Murdoch family, I went into details that were left out of the series and then the updates that have happened since that series came out. Or if you don't know the Murdoch case at all, you can take that deep dive with me. All three parts are available on my YouTube channel or Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your audio podcasts. The reason I'm mentioning that series is because there were a few deaths connected to the Murdoch family that I went into detail about in those episodes, but there was another cold case that was reopened in connection to the rumors about the Murdoch family, and that was the death of Stephen Smith. As I was doing my research for those episodes, I learned more about Stephen and his family's extremely long fight for justice. As I started researching that portion of the Murdoch episodes, I decided that I wanted to give 100% of my attention to research and talk specifically about Stephen's case. And I'll be honest, my initial look at Stephen's case was mainly from what I learned through the Murdoch Murders documentary on Netflix, and then the surface level that I looked into for the first bit of my research. And as I took a dive into the dozens of articles and tried to find older articles about this case and the case files, I was absolutely shocked at the way that this investigation went. And I cannot believe the things that happened and what it has taken for Steven's family to actually get his case looked into. There is so much more than I originally imagined. I also wanted to mention at the top of this episode, there have been some new people named as persons of interest in this case. So I will be going over the Murdoch rumors as well as the other suspects in this case. The Murdoch cloud definitely consumed Stephen's case, and I want to make sure that I include all of the connections, not just the possible connection to the Murdochs. That's alleged. Don't sue me. Stephen Smith was described as hilarious and friendly. He was unafraid to be himself no matter what anyone else thought about him. He had blonde hair and beautiful bright eyes, and along with just being a stunning human being, he was also incredibly smart and very funny. Stephen was a straight-A student and graduated from Wade Hampton High School in 2014. After high school, he was pursuing a nursing degree at OC Tech, and his inspiration to get through school was because he really wanted to be able to help people in need. He planned to get through nursing school and then use that job to help him pay for medical school. Amazing. Stephen's mom, Sandy, said, quote, His room was a library. Every dollar he got from chores, he'd be buying books. He was so smart, and he always had a dream of being a doctor. End quote. Everything that I've read about Stephen just shows that he had a huge heart and brought a lot of joy to the people around him. Stephen was openly gay, and in the Netflix documentary, people talked about how challenging that could be for a teenager or anybody of any age, really, in this part of the South to be openly gay because it was so conservative and awfully judgy there. But as far as everything I've read, Stephen was very confident and sure of himself, no matter what anyone else thought, which I just love. Um, one of his close friends, Felicia Walling, said, quote, He was a great person. He was always energetic. Even on his worst days, he made everyone else feel special, end quote. Unfortunately, this wonderful life was cut short on the night of July 8, 2015. A driver going down Crockettville Road called 911 and reported that there was a person laying in the middle of the road. It was dark, so the driver couldn't see exactly what happened, but this person was not moving and appeared to be injured. The police and paramedics arrived and found that it was Stephen Smith, who was lying in the middle of the road with severe head trauma. 
There was a 7.25-inch gash in his forehead. He had a partially dislocated shoulder, as well as cuts and bruises on his right hand that looked like road rash. His cell phone was in his pocket, and none of the clothing he was wearing was damaged, and he still had what was described as loosely tied shoes on. And that last bit about the loosely tied shoes is important because a lot of the time when a person is hit by a car, their shoes are thrown off because of the impact, especially if they were as loose as the police report described. There is a picture of these shoes and they are not tied tightly. It's like they're knotted and then the shoelaces are stuck into the shoes. So it's not like they were tied tightly onto his feet. Stephen's car was found about three miles away and it appeared that he had run out of gas and pulled over. The car didn't appear to have any other issues. The gas cap was off and Stephen's wallet was still inside the car. The theory that authorities came up with was that he was on his way home from a night class when he ran out of gas and began walking home. Stephen's mom, Sandy, said that this doesn't seem right to her at all. She said that he never would have been walking down the middle of the road. He would have been very nervous about doing that based on his personality, according to Sandy. And he was found in the middle of the road, not the shoulder. So why would he be walking down the center of the road in the dark. From what I've read, it seems that at first police thought that he had been shot because of his injuries. This injury gets brought up a lot of different times. There are multiple different options of what they thought could have caused the gash in his forehead. Like I said, the first one that they assumed was that this was a gunshot because of the wound. The coroner, Ernie Washington, referred to this wound as a gunshot wound and pointed out the entry and exit points of the bullet and deemed the death a homicide. The deputy coroner, Kelly Green, also verbally affirmed the findings to the police. The day after Stephen was found, a search was done in the 100-yard area and police didn't find any bullet casings and his actual autopsy didn't show any kind of a bullet or bullet fragments. Despite the initial opinion that this was a homicide, the doctor who performed the autopsy, Aaron Presnell, deemed this a hit and run and said that Stephen had died from blunt force trauma after being hit by a vehicle. Even though this same doctor also said that there were no glass fragments or any other evidence of a vehicle found, which would be expected in a hit and run. There was also no broken glass or anything at all found at the scene that would have indicated that Stephen was hit by a car. And again, none of his clothing was damaged. The initial reports said, quote, there were no visible injuries to the deceased other than his head wound and a small amount of road rash on both arms, end quote. And there was also, quote, no vehicle debris, skid marks, or injuries consistent with someone being struck by a vehicle. And yet, this doctor still said that it was a hit and run. This is going to drive you insane and come up over and over and over again throughout this entire case. The coroner, Ernie Washington, and the lead investigator, Todd Proctor, did not believe from the beginning that this was a hit and run. Proctor said, quote, As any investigator, you go off of the evidence. There was no evidence that pointed towards this being a hit and run or a vehicle even being involved in it. It looked like it was staged, like possibly the body had been placed in the roadway, end quote. Unfortunately, Stephen's case did not get a lot of media attention in the beginning or even for a few years, not until all of the Murdoch stuff started spinning out of control. Thankfully, the Fitz News website had a full breakdown of the case file that was organized and easy to follow, so I was able to piece together a lot of this information through that. On July 11th, 2015, Stephen's family had his funeral and they chose to have an open casket saying, quote, so people could see what they did to him, end quote. There was never a second that anyone in Stephen's family believed that this was a hit and run. They believed it was a homicide, and I don't blame them based on what was initially said in the reports and the evidence or lack of evidence at the scene. And even if it was a hit and run, somebody did this. And in my opinion, it seems like there were only a handful of people who were actually trying to figure out who did this to Stephen, because even if this was an accidental hit and run, 
Cars don't just drive themselves out into the middle of nowhere, hit pedestrians, and then disappear. Someone needs to be held responsible for this, no matter which angle is being pushed, and that is part of what makes me so insane about this situation. Anyways, as things often go in these investigations, there were people who tried to insert themselves maybe where they shouldn't have been. Not long after Stephen's death, a man named Mark Bickhart called police and told them that he was Stephen's boyfriend. Stephen's family disputes this and says that this man did not have any kind of a relationship with Stephen that was considered a boyfriend relationship. Mark said that when Stephen talked to him that evening, Stephen said that he had been harassed in town by quote-unquote rednecks in big trucks and that the people harassing with him had allegedly screwed with his car battery. When they found Stephen's car, the battery was fine, but the car wouldn't start, and like I mentioned, the gas tank cover was open and the gas cap was off, which led police to assume that he just ran out of gas, and that was why he pulled over. Mark told police that he was willing to hand over his cell phone and take a lie detector test. He also told them that he had done a lot of drugs and had several brain injuries, but said, quote, I'm telling you man to man, I didn't kill him, end quote. Stephen's family, again, was very suspicious of this person, claiming to be Stephen's boyfriend, and they said that he had definitely not been dating Stephen. This guy was a lot older than Stephen, and Stephen's twin sister, Stephanie, said that this guy was not at all Stephen's type. If anything, he was more of like a sugar daddy type, um, which Stephanie said that when she said that, Mark was not pleased about it, but she just was like, that's my opinion. It doesn't make sense. Whatever their actual relationship was, Mark said that he had talked to him on the phone the night of his death and that Stephen had sent him a text not long before he was killed. From what I understand, the first round of investigating Stephen's death did not include looking into his phone records, which seems ridiculous because I think that would answer a lot of questions. But Sandy Smith said that Stephen's phone was eventually returned to them by the investigators after they could not unlock the phone and then they told her that it would take at least a year for them to be able to get the records from their phone provider because they needed a warrant and all of those things that go into that. Eventually, she found out that the phone had never been sent to Apple to try to be unlocked and there was nothing happening with anyone trying to look into the phone. It was another thing that made the Smiths feel like no one was paying attention or actually trying their very best on Stephen's case. And let me say, not everybody in the investigation. There are definitely people in this story who were going above and beyond, who were doing everything they could, but they were hitting roadblocks because of the way that other people were handling the situation and the evidence. And this mishandled phone situation was just one of the things that Sandy brought up when she eventually wrote a letter to the FBI essentially begging them to take a look at Stephen's case because their family didn't know who they could even trust anymore in their local law enforcement. One of the Smith's family attorneys, Ronnie Richter, said, quote, I think Stephen's cell phone is a really big deal in this case. First, because it was on the person. To think that he walked three miles at 4 a.m. or about that on a dark country road with his cell phone the entire time. Apparently, he never made an effort to call his sister nearby or text a friend for help. I think that's a fascinating fact. Can we really accept that his car had broken down and with a cell phone in his back pocket, he walked three miles down a black, dark country road and never called for help? If he was going to get some gas, he left his wallet behind? End quote. And something that I want to make a note of is that Stephen's family believes that this could have been a targeted hate crime or that maybe someone who had been seeing Stephen wasn't open about their sexuality and put a target on Stephen. Before his death, his family said that Stephen had started acting a little differently, a little bit more secretive than usual. He was missing more classes than he normally would and staying out a lot later than usual. Obviously, Stephen was 19. He could do what he wanted and come and go, but his family did notice those things before his death. According to Sandy, Stephen alluded to dating, quote, 
someone from a prominent family in the county who was hiding his sexuality, end quote, but Stephen never said who that was. Stephen was openly gay, and he respected that not everybody was as comfortable being quote-unquote out in their community. So again, this led people to wonder who he was hanging out with that maybe did not have the best intentions. So among the small weird things, there are a couple of major things that made people raise an eyebrow at the way that this whole investigation was handled. First of all, the coroner's findings, and second of all, the amount of times that the Murdochs were brought up in this investigation. The coroner, Ernie White, as well as the South Carolina Highway Patrol officers who were at the scene, did not, for a second, feel that this was a hit and run. Officer Todd Proctor got in touch with Dr. Aaron Presnell, who performed the autopsy, to get clarification about her ruling that this was a hit and run and not a murder case and figure out why she would think that. In a report about their interaction, Officer Proctor wrote, quote, I went down to MUSC on this date to meet with Dr. Aaron Presnell. She is the pathologist that performed the autopsy on the victim in this case. The reason I went and spoke with her was due to a preliminary report where she stated that the victim was possibly struck by a motor vehicle mirror, which was the cause of death. Sergeant Moore had already had, from my understanding, a heated conversation with her about this issue. The MAIT team has always had a good working relationship with MUSC, so I wanted to see if I could go down there and get some sort of clarification. As soon as Dr. Presnell came into the room, she began in a negative tone stating that I did not have a meeting scheduled and that she was very busy. She stated that she could not even begin speaking with me about this case without the coroner's consent. I advised her that I had spoken with Coroner Washington the day before, and she basically called me a liar and said that she would call him right then. When I asked if she wanted me to call him from my cell phone, she backed off. I asked her why she stated that in the report, and her answer was, quote, because he was found in the road, end quote. She had no evidence other than that for the statement being put in the report. She asked why we did not think it was a vehicle strike, and I explained to her that we had no evidence of this individual being struck by a vehicle. I asked her if someone with a baseball bat could do that, and she stated, no. When I probed further, saying, what about someone in a moving car with a bat? She stated, well, I guess it's possible. She then asked if we found a bat as evidence. I could see that this conversation was not going to yield any positive results. As I was leaving, she stated that the report was preliminary and that it was my job to figure out what struck him, not hers, end quote. Dr. Aaron Presnell's official conclusion was that Stephen's injuries and death were caused by a motor vehicle, possibly the side mirror of a truck, even though there was no evidence to prove that or really point in that direction, and she had those multiple harshly worded conversations with these officers trying to get the clarification. It's not great. Doesn't look great. On July 14th, 2015, the Smith family got the first of three different death certificates for Stephen. The certificate said, quote, cause of death, blunt force trauma, probably pedestrian in motor vehicle accident, possibly struck by side mirror, manner of death, pending investigation, how injury occurred, subject was apparently hit by a motor vehicle, possibly a truck, end quote. I don't know how you'd come up with that information when there's no evidence supporting it. As I mentioned, the two different investigators were not happy with the foundings from Dr. Presnell, and they both noted hostility from Dr. Presnell when they pushed her for more information about this conclusion. A forensic scientist for the South Carolina Law Enforcement Division, aka SLED, looked closer at Stephen's clothing. In his notes, that scientist, Michael Moscal, noted that there was no automotive paint found on Stephen's shirt, short, or shoes. But on another item, and I'm not sure what this item was because it just says item two through four, but on those items, whatever they were that were with Stephen, Michael Moscow found 10 different one millimeter single layer blue paint chips. In his notes, he said that more paint would be needed to determine exactly where they came from, but that they could also be from an industrial tool, signpost, or dumpster. 
It was also noted that this type of paint was similar to something that Toyota used on some of their vehicles in 1982 through 1988. Aside from those minuscule amount of paint chips, there was no other evidence that Stephen was struck by a car. And those tiny pieces of paint could have come from a lot of different places, including the fact that the chain of custody was broken with these items. I guess his stuff was left in a bag at the funeral home and then investigators took it. So who knows? where those came from. An editor's note on fitsnews.com says, quote, one millimeter is very small, the width of a pencil tip. And keep in mind, chain of custody appeared to be broken on the clothes when they were left at the funeral home in a bag. So it's hard to say where those paint chips came from, end quote. Like many of you listening to this episode, the first time I heard about Stephen's case was in the Murdoch Murders documentary on Netflix. Stephen's case was reopened in 2021 after a whole mess of other things about Alec Murdoch came out. The way that I understood it from watching the documentary, the way it was presented, it seemed like everything was kind of coming out and falling apart for the Murdoch family. And then people started calling in tips and pointing fingers and making accusations about Stephen's death somehow being connected to the Murdochs like it was just another piece of gossip and drama. However, as I started going through the police report breakdown, it's very clear that the Murdochs were being talked about from the very beginning back in 2015. To give you the absolute bare bones rundown, Alec Murdoch is part of a very prominent family who has a ton of power and privilege in the low country of South Carolina for the last 100 or more years. The Murdochs are made up of generations of lawyers and district attorneys who had everyone in their back pockets from law enforcement to politicians and everyone in between. They were well known and it seems had a reputation that you do not mess with the Murdochs. In 2019, Alec's youngest son, Paul, was drunk driving a boat that caused a major accident, injuring multiple people and resulting in the absolutely tragic death of Mallory Beach. From the jump, the Murdoch family rallied around Paul and tried to get him out of the multiple felony charges he was facing. In 2021, Paul and his mother, Maggie, were brutally murdered on their 1,700-acre property. At first, there were different suspects, but eventually, Alec Murdoch was convicted of their murders, and he apparently committed them in the midst of a huge money laundering, drug trafficking, fraud scheme that was all coming to light. Alec Murdoch is a horrendous human being, to say the least. As all that information was coming to light about the Murdochs, another mysterious death, that of Gloria Satterfield, who was the Murdoch's housekeeper, got a second investigation when her sons discovered that Alec and some of his little law buddies made a huge insurance settlement under the Satterfield's name, but kept the $4.3 million for themselves. As all of that was happening, Stephen Smith's case was brought to the surface again, finally, because there had been rumors that Alec's older son, Buster, had something to do with Stephen's death. Stephen was killed in 2015. That was long before the boat accident. That was definitely before anything coming out about Alec's crimes. So this wasn't just people hopping on the bandwagon once things started going downhill. It had been there from the beginning. In 2015, as far as everyone knew, the Murdoch family was just a well-known family that was super rich and full of lawyers in South Carolina. Again, you can watch or listen to the Murdoch series that I did. If this is not ringing any bells for you, there's obviously so much more to it, but that's like the absolute minimum that you need to know to have some clarity for Stephen's case. Like I said, I realized that there was a lot more to this case than I originally thought as I looked over the police reports so helpfully, beautifully summarized by fitsnews.com. Seriously, I couldn't have done this episode without their four-part breakdown. I will link that in the episode description if you want to look at the full thing. Shout out to Fitz News if any of you happen to watch this. I don't know why you would, but maybe you will. Anyways, to sum it up for you, 
Buster Murdoch was mentioned at least a dozen times in the initial investigation, but was never interviewed about any of the tips given to officers back in 2015. And let me just say really quickly, to cover my own ass, I am not accusing anyone of anything. I am summing up what was given to the police reports. Buster has never been named as a person of interest, innocent until proven guilty. It could just be hearsay, etc. Stephen's twin sister, Stephanie, was approached multiple times after Stephen's death. Pause. I just realized Stephen and Stephanie. That's adorable. And I love it. Stephanie was approached multiple times after Stephen's death by people telling her about the Murdochs being involved. She said that the first time she left the house after Stephen's death, people approached her saying that. The first time the Murdochs were mentioned in an official police report was July 17th, 2015, about nine days after Stephen's death. An officer interviewed an unnamed relative of Stevens that day who said that Stephen had been acting secretive and coming home a lot later than usual. They asked this person if they had been contacted by a lawyer, and it turns out that Alec Murdoch's brother, Randy Murdoch, contacted Stephen's father about representing their family for free. They felt that this was very strange, first of all, because they hadn't really interacted with the Murdochs much outside of this, and second, because Randy Murdoch was the second person to call them right after the coroner, letting them know that Stephen had passed. How did Randy even know that this happened that quickly? And why would he take it upon himself to offer this for free right out of the gate? I'm assuming that that police interview was with Stephanie, but the report just says the relative. But this person also said that she was approached by people saying that the Murdoch boys had something to do with this, and she was really skeptical at first. She didn't think that Stephen had ever mentioned Buster Murdoch, other than that they had gone to school with him. Sandy said that she also had been hearing these rumors around town. She couldn't even go to the grocery store without someone coming up to her and telling her that they thought that they had something to do with this. But outside of just knowing who the Murdochs were because they were a well-known family, she hadn't really interacted with them either. One thing to note, if I understand correctly, these are taped police interviews and they have handwritten notes as well. And on these occasions where the Murdochs were brought up, the officers, a lot of the time, didn't physically write down that piece of information. It's like it was on a tape, but then they didn't make a physical note of it. Which seems weird when they were taking notes about everything else, but then they just left out the Murdoch tips. When Sandy was interviewed and she said that she heard these rumors, the officer didn't ask her any follow-up questions like if Stephen knew the Murdochs. Who told her that? Where she heard it from? If she'd interacted with them? Nothing. She said that she heard that rumor and they just left it alone. And obviously, here's the thing about rumors. They might be just that, gossip and lies that are spread from person to person because people can't help themselves, and then it turns into a big old game of telephone, and you're getting all kinds of ridiculous information. But when it's put into an official police report, you have to follow up on that because you just never know. There are cases where officers have to go investigate some random lead that makes no sense because some idiot makes a call to a family claiming to be a psychic who knows the person who killed their loved one. And it's obviously not a good lead and it doesn't go anywhere, but they have to follow up on these tips because even if it seems ridiculous, that might be true. So the fact that they just kind of like shrugged it off, it's weird. There was a note in one of the police reports that an officer tried calling Buster Murdoch once. His voicemail box was full, so we sent him an email and never heard back, and then they just never followed up again. Like, oh, he didn't answer. Bummer. I just don't understand. The rumor that was developing was that Stephen and Buster had had some kind of a secret relationship. Stephen was obviously very open about his sexuality, and the rumor was spreading that someone like Buster from a family like his, this would be a huge scandal if it were true. And people outside of Stephen's family contacted police to tell them the same information. 
Officer Proctor interviewed a guy referred to as Kevin. And Kevin said that he was really uncomfortable coming forward with the information because part of him thought that it was maybe just a he said, she said situation, but that when he really thought about it, quote, it would make sense, end quote. Kevin said that he heard that Buster and two friends were driving around when they saw Stephen on the side of the road and started harassing him and, quote, stuck something out the window, end quote. Kevin said that this would have been after a party at the Murdoch's Moselle property, and most likely these kids had been on drugs. The Moselle property was a party house for all of the local kids who were friends with Paul and Buster Murdoch. Allegedly, this is because they could get all kinds of drugs, and there were no adults around who cared if everyone was drinking and partying and getting in fights. Kevin went on to say that the Murdochs were supposedly going to different people, telling them to keep their mouths shut, and he said, quote, I don't want to say power, but the name brings a certain standard with it. I think that's why people are hush-hush about it, end quote. He told Officer Proctor that the first time he heard about the Murdoch connection was at a different party where a group of people were talking about Stephen's death, and someone basically said that they didn't think anything would come out of the investigation because of who the Murdochs were and how they were connected to it. Kevin said that when he first heard this rumor, he thought the person was talking about Paul Murdoch, who was 15 or 16 at that time, and about Paul he said, quote, I don't want to say troublemaker, he's more the my last name is Murdoch, I can do whatever, end quote. Kevin also said that he felt that if Buster was involved, it could have been an accident and not a purposeful attack on Stephen. Quote, I really can't say anything bad about them. They were nothing but nice. I hate it that I have to say anything towards them at all. I can't help if it's the truth. Your name can only carry you but so far, end quote. Officer Proctor did a really great job going through each person who was in this chain of rumors to get to the bottom of who started this whole thing because there were about 10 interviews that he did because this person said it was this person who said it was this person who said it was this person and finally he was able to start getting some answers. Officer Proctor was not the person who interviewed Stephen's family and he's not the one who didn't make note about the Murdochs. That was two different officers. Officer Proctor was a South Carolina state trooper and he was and as he was interviewing people, he basically said, look, I'm not from Hampton County. The Murdochs don't scare me or have anything to do with me. So if you know something about them, I'm a safe person to tell. Because while everyone was kind of spreading this information through town, when it really came down to it, people were scared to talk. People did not want to bring up the Murdochs, even though they had that information. And that's why Kevin was talking about it in a way where he basically said that he didn't want to bring it up if it wasn't true, but that he felt he needed to say something, which is really good because even if it's something that's false, it should be easy to disprove it, but there just has to be an investigation. Anyways, on the 10th person in the rumor chain interview, he said to this person in the interview, quote, I'm out of Charleston. I'm not from Hampton, but I know the Murdoch name in Hampton is pretty big, but as far as I'm concerned, I couldn't give two craps about the Murdochs. But what I'm seeing is a lot of people seem hesitant to talk about the Murdochs or Buster. Do you kind of see that? End quote. This person agreed and then went on to tell her side of the story. But that was as far as things could go with the first round of investigations into the Murdoch's possible connection to Stephen's death. In a recent interview, Officer Proctor said that as they tried to unravel these things and to get to the bottom of these rumors, people became less cooperative and they stopped talking altogether. He said, quote, As people of interest come up in the case, you try to get them to speak with you and they shut down. And when you don't have enough evidence to compel someone legally to speak with you, you have to go off their willingness to speak to you, end quote. When this reporter asked if that included the Murdochs, his answer was, it does. Eventually, in the beginning of 2023, Buster did put out a public statement after trying to ignore the rumors throughout Alex's trial. He felt that the constant media attention and accusations basically were forcing him to say something. In a statement that he put out through his lawyers, he said, quote, 
This has gone on far too long. These baseless rumors of my involvement with Stephen and his death are false. I unequivocally deny any involvement in his death and my heart goes out to the Smith family, end quote. As I mentioned before, Buster has never been mentioned as a person of interest and none of the Murdochs have ever been interviewed in connection to Stephen's case. But when this case was reopened in June of 2021, the South Carolina Law Enforcement Department said in a statement that they were taking a new look at the case, quote, based upon information gathered during the course of the double murder investigation of Paul and Maggie Murdoch, end quote. This could mean a number of things, and I think that most people, definitely myself included, assumed that this meant that it was somehow connected directly to the Murdoch case. But as I'm kind of sitting here thinking about all of this, I'm starting to wonder if it was something else that just happened to come up as they were interviewing different people. I don't know. There is so much to this case that is still unfolding, but for now, I am putting the Murdoch theory on the back burner so that we can talk about these new persons of interest that I mentioned at the beginning of the episode. They're not exactly new persons of interest. It's just that they were mentioned in a police report that never went anywhere the first time around. The first time that I heard there were other possible suspects was when I was reading through those police reports. And then as I'm going through the Investigoogle rabbit hole, there's barely anything about these people and their connections to this case. It's so bizarre because this is a pretty big piece of information. But again, the Murdoch madness is completely taking over and I think that people can't look anywhere else. The thing is, though, technically, even in this theory, there are still some Murdoch connections there. On December 15th, 2015, a man named Daryl Williams called in a tip saying that his stepson, Patrick Wilson, confided in him that one of his friends, Sean Connolly, had killed Stephen. Daryl told Officer Proctor that he was, quote, passing this information along because Randy Murdoch told him to call, end quote. This all gets really confusing because there was an interview that Officer Proctor did with Daryl Williams where he said that his stepson told him his friend had hit Stephen and that Randy told him to call. Then there's a different interview that has a deeper story that was done by an Officer Duncan, and I guess Officer Duncan interviewed Nick Ginn of the Hampton County PD, and Officer Ginn told Officer Duncan that he heard this from Daryl. It's so confusing. Even just saying that felt like I was not forming real sentences. I will do my best to sum this all up, but it's a little bit nuts because it is like a third-hand story. Trying to explain that whole this person told this person told this person made me feel like that girl that's in Ferris Bueller's Day Off who's in the classroom and says the thing about my friend knows this guy who's going with this girl who has a cousin who saw Ferris pass out at 31 Flavors last night. That it's like that, okay? If you get that reference, you're the bomb. Here we go. So, Officer Ginn said that Daryl Williams said his stepson Patrick told him that Sean Connolly had been driving home drunk one night when he hit something in the road but didn't know what it was. When Sean went back the next day, he saw cops there and learned from the media that someone had been killed. Allegedly, Sean called Patrick crying and told him what happened. Then, Patrick told Daryl what happened, and Patrick was also crying and then went outside and threw up, so Daryl wondered if Patrick had also been there and part of this. Officer Duncan asked Officer Ginn if Patrick told Daryl what happened, and he said, quote, supposedly it was the mirror, end quote. Sean drove a truck, and one of the things mentioned in the autopsy report was the speculation that Stephen's death could have resulted from being hit by a truck, possibly the side mirror. So that was public knowledge. That wasn't guilt knowledge of someone who was actually there. But most people involved in this investigation didn't believe this was a hit and run anyway, so that story doesn't really make sense when you compare it to the evidence, but that is what was said. 
Officer Duncan asked Officer Ginn, quote, what do you feel about Patrick, end quote. Officer Ginn said he thinks Patrick, quote, is a good-hearted person, but that he is, quote-unquote, shady. According to the police file, neither Sean Connolly or Patrick Wilson were ever interviewed about this alleged incident. Officer Duncan said he tried to contact Patrick, quote, but he avoided the call, the contact, and all, end quote. As I previously mentioned, people don't have to talk to police in these situations, and I go back and forth because I'm like, we'll just make them, but then also part of me is like, okay, but we can't just have police forcing you to talk about stuff when you're not involved in it. It's part of your rights. Anyways, unless there is enough evidence to arrest someone or to subpoena them to make them talk, there's only so much that can be done without the other person's consent, which is good. But in situations like this, oh, it's so frustrating. Officer Ginn also told Officer Duncan that Sean had allegedly gotten repairs done to his truck mirrors. He also said that he gave photos of the truck repairs to the South Carolina Highway Patrol, but those photos are nowhere to be found, from what I understand. Once the case was reopened in 2021, SLED investigators interviewed Officer Ginn, and according to Fitznews.com, it's unclear exactly what happened in that interview, but they also said that an interview conducted by Stephen Peterson, who is a private investigator working for the Smith family, also interviewed Officer Ginn in 2021, and he recanted everything about the truck mirrors, the pictures, and his statement about Sean Connolly. Stephen Peterson said, quote, Ginn denied all of that when I spoke with him, end quote. And allegedly, Daryl Williams said that he, quote, never said anything about Randy Murdoch telling him to go to the police about Patrick Wilson, end quote. So why is it in the police reports multiple times? So what's the deal, you might be thinking, with Sean Connolly and Patrick Wilson's connections to the Murdochs? I would love to tell you thanks for asking. At the time that Patrick Wilson may or may not have spilled the beans about Sean's alleged connection, Patrick was facing attempted murder charges. According to an arrest warrant, on April 17th, 2015, Patrick got into an altercation with a man and fired a shot at the man's car with two passengers inside. He missed the car and hit a sign that was nearby, but Patrick was charged with attempted murder and first-degree assault and battery. Sean Connolly was in the car with Patrick when it happened. Also, from what I understand, Sean Connolly spoke to police about what happened and confirmed that Patrick did fire the shot. So then the story becomes that Patrick found out that Sean had hit someone with his truck. And now we're just all pointing fingers at each other, allegedly. Patrick was indicted by a grand jury in August of 2015. And then while he was out on bond, the family that he shot at filed several complaints about Patrick. Patrick was being represented by Corey Fleming, who might ring a bell for you because he is Alec Murdoch's BFF and partner in crime, who is currently facing 18 counts of conspiracy, breach of trust, money laundering, and obtaining property by false pretenses, among other things. Not great. So there's your little Murdoch trail. In February of 2018, Patrick's charges were dropped by the 14th Circuit Solicitor's Office, where Alec Murdoch worked part-time as a solicitor. And they decided not to prosecute this case at all after he shot at a family who then made multiple complaints about him. And then they just dropped it and went on their way. As for Sean Connolly, Randy Murdoch, the same lawyer who called Stephen's family and offered to take their case for free the day Stephen died, Randy filed a motor vehicle accident lawsuit against him less than a month after Stephen's death. Less than a year later, another Murdoch attorney filed another motor vehicle lawsuit against Sean on May 17, 2016. Both of those lawsuits against Sean were dismissed by what Fitz News referred to as quote-unquote Murdoch-friendly judges in the 14th Judicial Court. So, that looks odd 
to say the least. So who knows what's going on in that whole situation. Uh, But as of right now, Stephen's case is being looked into and there is obviously so much happening that they have to keep things as quiet as possible while they build a case in the midst of the media storm around the Murdoch and Friends cases. So I think that we will be hearing a lot more about this very soon. There's been a lot of updates, so we are definitely not done with this case and I think that this one can seriously be solved very soon. To wrap it up, the Smith family is finally getting some wins after screaming into an unhelpful void for years. Sandy Smith has fought day in and day out for her sweet son, and I am so glad that there is finally movement. Like I said, I think that this case, we will see it solved very soon. SLED took over the investigation. They're a bigger agency than the Highway Patrol that was originally. Big things have happened since SLED took over, and they are doing a beautiful job with this investigation. They are a bigger agency than the Highway Patrol that was originally getting things going, and they are the ones who kind of uncovered everything to do with Alex's whole thing. So clearly, They're great at uncovering secrets, and they are great at bringing them to the forefront and getting people behind bars where they should be. One of the huge wins is that they are looking into Stephen's cell phone records. Again, unbelievable that this wasn't handled correctly in the first place. If I understand correctly, either the investigation gave it back to them or they asked for it back so they could keep it safe. Um, And that is something that is currently being looked into that I think is going to answer a lot of questions and rule out a lot of these theories. Another win for the Smiths was that when the case was reopened by SLED, Stephen's cause of death was officially changed from a hit and run to a homicide. In April of 2023, Stephen's body was exhumed and they performed a second autopsy. And this autopsy was performed by a different agency out of Florida instead of somewhere in South Carolina. They didn't want to take any chances having the same people do the autopsy and come up with the same conclusions that were clearly incorrect. And if I remember correctly, I read something where an investigator basically said that based on their evidence, they already were able to determine that this was a homicide, even without needing that second autopsy. Um, But they did it anyways for peace of mind. And obviously you need the evidence. One of the Smith lawyers, Eric Bland, put out a statement on Twitter saying, quote, I cannot thank SLED enough for making Sandy's dream of exhuming Stephen and having a second autopsy be done become a reality and her pleas regarding Stephen for the last eight years to finally be heard. The state of South Carolina has spent a significant amount of money this past weekend ensuring a smooth and orderly exhumation, end quote. The autopsy results have also stayed very quiet, which is a good thing. The autopsy was led by Dr. Dan Schultz, president and chief pathologist for a private company in Tampa called Final Diagnosis. One of the other team members, Dr. Michelle Dupree, said, quote, I can actually tell you that we were able to get all the information really that we need. We were able to do a complete and thorough second autopsy. Everything that has been done and everyone who has taken care of Stephen from day one till he was returned back to the grave did a very professional job. And that made our job of a second autopsy a lot easier, end quote. Dr. Dupree described this second autopsy as a success. And while they can't release the information yet, they did determine a new cause of death and manner of death. And that is huge. Obviously, they are on the right track and there is still a lot to be done. But the important thing is that things are finally being done to help the Smiths get the justice that is so deserved for Stephen. Ronnie Richter and Eric Bland, who are representing the Smiths, said, quote, We have a chance to right eight years of wrongs, and we intend to do just that, end quote. To end things on a little bit of an up note, the outpouring of love and support for Stephen and his family has been really incredible. Um, There have been a number of different fundraising efforts to help the Smiths pay for the mountain of legal fees that it takes to get a body exhumed and to get that testing done. One of these fundraisers was organized by the Capital Club of Columbia in South Carolina. The Capital Club's website says it is, quote, the longest standing and most dignified private gay bar. The Capital Club has been an established and integral part of our community for over 36 years. 
The Capital Club is the longest continuous operating gay bar in the Southeast and the oldest in Columbia, end quote. I freaking love to see it. Since this case has been reopened, the Smiths have been able to raise over $100,000 through a GoFundMe that was set up, which I will have linked in the description for this episode. The initial goal, this makes me get emotional when I try to explain it, and I don't know why. Um, there just are so many awful things happening in this world, and this family has been through so much and have been let down again and again. And so for there to be people who are willing to band together and make a difference and support this family. I just am like, oh good. Like there are still good people in the world doing good things. So I'm sorry, I get, I get all, I'm such a boob, I don't know. Okay, the initial goal that they set up for the GoFundMe was $15,000 and they are currently at just over $129,000 raised by the community. In an update posted by Sandy on the GoFundMe page, she said that they are using $35,000 of the amount raised for um, a reward for information that leads to an arrest in Stephen's case. She ended her update saying, quote, Thank you for the kind words, prayers, and donations. You have made this possible, and it means the world to us. We believe 2023 is Stephen's year. Thank you again for all the love and support, end quote. There are probably people who watch this channel who think I'm so annoying because I get so emotional and like way too invested, but I don't think that it's way too invested. I don't think there is such a thing as being too empathetic. I don't think that there is such a thing as caring too much about people. I'm not a robot. I'm a human person, and this is what we do at this channel. So if you're that kind of person with a soft heart, I feel you. I love you. Thank you for being here. Again, for every Alec Murdoch who is out there ruining lives and stealing and treating people like crap, there are beautiful, wonderful people who contribute to things like this. And to stand together, it's more than just the money. It's demanding justice. And I think that's really incredible. And it's not letting people get away with shit that they shouldn't get away with. I'm recording this episode on April 26th, 2023. And I'm hoping that in the coming months, there will be some major updates. I will keep you posted as much as I can, because like I said, and like Steven's family said, this is Steven's year. I think that this case is going to be solved. I truly hope so. Um, make sure that you subscribe on YouTube or Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. Until next time, keep being loud, keep demanding change, and keep standing up for the stuff that you believe in. Thank you for being here through this episode. I will talk to you soon. Bye.